0: Good morning, everyone. All right. Everybody have a sheet? There are some sheets on the back, ta- on the back table, if you leave one. We also have some pens. Um, my wife's, among her many complaints from last week, when she's, you know, critiquing my, critiquing my performance, she said, you only put out one pen. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry to any of you who did not have a pen last week. <clears throat> How are you doing, Quentin? Good. Are you ready to go? All right. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your uh, work and your constant provision for us. Not just in your, uh, not just in yourself, not just in your salvation, not just in your presence, but also in your wisdom and how it works through the world and how it sets up a foundation for us to build a rich life in you, whether or not we have. Uh, wealth and abundance, whether or not we live a life of leisure, we can still live a good, full life that is understanding who you are and how you work in the world and our place in that work. We so thank you for that. Let us continue to see that this morning with, through your word and enthusiasm. We thank you for this whole series and we ask that you uh, bless the teachers in the coming weeks, give them clarity and wisdom as they, as they see how you work in your world. In your name, amen. Alright, so this week we are looking at Ecclesiastes, we've been going through wisdom literature, for those of you who haven't been with us, or in case you, you missed a week or two, the wisdom literature um, through Job, we're going to go, um, last week we did Proverbs, this week Ecclesiastes, next week is Job, and you'll have some, you have some homework on your sheets, the week after that, uh, Psalms, correct? Um, All 150, Elizabeth will be here for a few days, but Elizabeth's walking us through the Psalms in a couple of weeks. But we're trying to look at them together. We're trying to look at them as a whole and how they fit into um, not just God's work, but our lives and building the life that God has for us. So last week we went through Proverbs uh, and looked at the principles outlined in Proverbs for building a good life. Constructing uh, a good life worth living. And if you just read, if you read through Proverbs, there are many sayings on lots of things, and we did not, we kind of approached it a little differently. We did not jump into uh, any one or another topic in the Proverbs. Like money, work, relationships, laziness, right? Lots of individual proverbial sayings on each one of those topics and we didn't jump into any of too many of those we tried to look at proverbs as a whole and take it the way it was collected many of them were written by solomon but not all of them some of them come to us from a couple of other kings a couple of uh, a few of them are collected from egypt solomon collects um, wise sayings that fit in with israel's theology from mesopotamia Right? And he's collecting all of those and putting them into the Proverbs. And the Proverbs ask, how do we build a good life? What is the good life, and how do we get one? Right? Ecclesiastes is then going to ask, is the good life worth living? You're going to see the writers of Ecclesiastes really struggle with the good life after it collapsed. And we'll get to that in just a second. But let's, we do need to review Proverbs in order to... Really understand what the writers of Ecclesiastes are telling us. So, constructing the good life primarily revolves around this word that's translated into wisdom. In the Hebrew, it's Hokma, and Hokma is a pretty deep, profound word that is not encompassed just in the English word wisdom. It's much more than that. It is almost like its own force, like gravity. It works throughout creation. It's God's wisdom, it's Yahweh's mind, and how that mind holds all things together. And the beginning of constructing a good life starts with understanding hokmah. God's mind is in the creation. His mind is put together in the ecosystems. His covenant with Adam is full of hokmah. You can rely on the sun. You can rely on the rivers. You can rely on the tides. You can rely on the provision of food through the creation. God is working through that creation in his chokmah as you and I construct the good life. We have to start with understanding that God holds all things together. Uh, And in his creative beauty, he has set up a foundation for you to creatively construct the good life. And it's not necessarily... Uh, as we said, a life of leisure, a life of wealth. Right? There are um, many people in Solomon's Israel, he's looking around and he's seeing people that don't necessarily have what he has, and yet they have constructed a good life. And it is contrasted with the fool who is building the opposite, building the bad life. He is constructing for himself a life of folly that is un- it's not dependable, uh, and it's going, to- it's going to fall out from under it. And wisdom, Hokma, is then personified in the Proverbs as this beautiful woman. We get, we get this woman who's calling out in the streets, come on in, dine with me. She's even contrasted with the woman of folly. They're both enticing. They're both beautiful. They're both meant to be, even for lack of a better way to say it, seductive. But the woman of folly, where she is alluring, the woman of wisdom is attractive. The woman of folly is luring men in, and they're literally calling two men, men of the street, and your sons, come in here, right? It's an intimate meal. Come in and dine with me, and we will party. And both of them are standing in their doorway, calling in to men, come in and dine with me. But one, where one is seductive, the other one is uh, satiating. One is seductive. One is truly satisfying. One is... Alluring, and the other one should be truly attractive. Right? And they're set up that way, personified that way, on purpose by the writer of, of Proverbs. It is a beautiful woman, and she does satisfy. And then you even see what happens when that chokmah is constructed in a life. You get another woman at the end of Proverbs, and you can see what her life was like, in Proverbs 31, she has built a life around Kokma. She does have the good life. She is wise. She is um, you know, uh, beneficial to her family and to her city. It's not just her own little cloistered bubble. She's not building the good life for herself. Her focus is on her family. Her focus is on her husband. Her focus is on her marketplace. She's concerned with the entire city. And everything benefits because of her. When she has built the life. A good life, constructed on Yahweh's wisdom, on hokmah, and so we get those women uh, personifying both wisdom and folly on purpose, and then you see a woman who's blatantly built that life and what it gives her. So, if you haven't read Proverbs thirty-one, please do it. That is, it is God's mind personified in that in that woman, um, and it's one of the king's mothers, one of those other kings who wrote part of Proverbs, King Lemuel. Okay, so that then gives, brings us to Ecclesiastes. So Proverbs is concerned with constructing a good, wise life. Ecclesiastes is concerned with how fleeting that good life is. Proverbs gives us general rules and patterns for good, wise living, and Ecclesiastes seems to be exceptions to those rules. Now, when we say seems to be, we get some kind of contradictory messages in Ecclesiastes. If you, did, if you read through it just last week, Ecclesiastes is not super clean. It's not um, all cogent and understandable. And one, one premise of the writer of Ecclesiastes says one thing, and then the very next verse contradicts it and wipes it out, if you, if you read. And we'll show some examples of that. Um, In order to understand why that is, we need to talk a little bit about who wrote it. Um, Most people assume it's Solomon. Because if you read in the beginning of Ecclesiastes, Solomon is alluded to. King of Israel, really wise, really wealthy, right? Nobody thinks Solomon wrote it. There are no scholars who actually say Solomon wrote it. It's only us when we read it. We are reading somebody who's taking on Solomon's persona and acting like they're Solomon. So first of all, we don't know when it was written, but we do think it was written very late. So well after Solomon, post-exile, meaning after the exile, but before the Maccabees take over Israel. Does everyone remember a really brief history lesson really quick? Right? Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar. Captures Israel, destroys the temple. Nebuchadnezzar dies. The sons aren't very powerful. Persia comes in under Cyrus, takes over Babylon. Cyrus, he's called the Kingmaker because he, as he conquers the land, he says, "No, you can, you can stay. You can have your own king. You can, you can be, uh, you know, uh, you can be a, um, almost a, a colony in the empire." right? You can have your own king. You can do what you want. You're just going to give me some soldiers and give me some taxes, but other than that, you're free, right? And so he lets Israel go home and even gives them money to rebuild their temple, right? They rebuild a smaller temple, uh, not quite as big as the one built under Solomon before Babylon took over. Eventually Cyrus dies. Who comes in? Alexander the Great. He conquers everything, right? Alexander dies. Four generals take over. They split up Alexander's kingdom. And there's a Jewish revolt of one of those generals, right? So we think that that, um, Ecclesiastes is written well after Solomon but before the Maccabees take back Israel. They take it back from a guy named Seleucid, uh, one of uh, Alexander the Great's generals, right? And then, of course, later on, the Maccabees, they can't rule anything. They don't do it very well. They're having trouble. And they appeal to Rome, will you please come in and establish order? And they don't know what they're asking for, right? And Rome comes right in and says, sure, we'll take over. And then you've got all the turmoil that Jesus then deals with uh, when he arrives in the Incarnation. So we think that it's written after the exile. Oh! Annie Kate, I love you. I everything. Annie Kate's computer, that just freaked me out. So, we think it was written sometime in here, right? Before the Maccabees, but after the exile. We do not think the author is Solomon, despite the attempts by the authors of Ecclesiastes to make it look like it's Solomon. Most scholars, and the best argument is that there are two writers of Ecclesiastes. One is this guy named Kohelet, The other is unnamed. He, scholars call him a frame narrator because he's narrating Kohelet's uh, Theology. He's narrating Kohelet's thoughts um, in the middle of the book, but he frames Kohelet's thoughts with a, a prologue and an epilogue. Okay? The frame narrator writes the very beginning of Ecclesiastes, then he quotes Kohelet in the middle, and then at the very end, he frames it again and sums everything up and cleans up Kohelet. Okay? Everybody follow so far. So the second wise man. He writes the very beginning of Ecclesiastes, the very end of Ecclesiastes, and in the middle, you've got the thoughts of this guy, Kohelet, who's really distraught over the good life. He doesn't get it. It didn't work. This thing is not working out, and I'm looking around and I'm seeing all sorts of turmoil no matter what I do. I followed Proverbs, and this is what it got me. But as you see, if you dive into Kohelet's thought, did you, you can ask, did you really follow the proverbs? Did you really build a life around Chokmah? And that's that kind of remains to be seen. Um, some people might be really bothered by this, so I, I did ask a question: Does it matter to you? Um, it does read like an old repentant Solomon after his apostasy, right? Um, and his apostasy is in First Kings. If you wanna, if you wanna read it, um, does anybody have a Bible on them right now? Um, Let's just let's just read. This is why people think that it's that it's solid. Uh, we got Ecclesiastes one one. Who's got Bibles? Sue, you get the first one. Ecclesiastes one one. One twelve. Somebody else. There are Bibles on the back. Oh, thank you, sir. One sixteen. You're like my students. No one brought their Bible to class. Thank you, Debbie. 116, and then uh, I'll get to 4 through 9. Okay, thank you, Stu. words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. So, right there, right? Sounds like Solomon. The words of the preacher, son of David. Uh, who was next? Yes, sir? Well, I, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. I was king over Israel and Jerusalem. Debbie? So, in keeping with Solomon's persona, I have surpassed everybody in Jerusalem before me in wisdom and in knowledge. And then, chapter 2, verses 4 through 9. I made great works. I built houses, planted vineyards for myself. I made great gardens and parks, planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves. I had slaves who were born in my house. I had great possessions of herds and flocks more than any who had seen uh, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I had gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers men and women and many concubines the delight of the children of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. If you just read that you read those verses you can very easily think well this is obviously Solomon. Despite that because of both the internal and external evidence within Ecclesiastes and its language, virtually no scholar thinks this is Solomon. They think that there's this other writer who is taking on Solomon's persona, who is mimicking him, and going to then, from what he knows about Solomon, go into a treatise on the good life and what it even got Solomon, right? Because as we all know, we call Solomon the wisest man who ever lived, but was Solomon really all that wise? He was wise for a minute. And then he very quickly turned apostate and worshipped all sorts of other gods with his hundreds and hundreds of wives in Jerusalem, in Israel. He built them temples. He let these women construct huge temples to their foreign gods, and he went in and he partook in the worship practices. He was not all that wise, and I don't think it should bother us at all that he didn't write Ecclesiastes. He is not somebody that we should necessarily emulate. He does, in the beginning of his reign, ask first and foremost, chiefly, for wisdom. And then he turns on it and does exactly what Adam and Eve do. Instead of sticking with God's chokmah, he uses his own wisdom to combat his temptation. And we see where it gets him. So, I don't think it should bother us that Solomon is not considered the writer of Ecclesiastes. And then one more little piece of evidence down there. The author does seem to be moved by the burden of the people in Israel. And we know that later in his life, Solomon was not. Solomon had, there was lots of injustice going on in Israel right in front of Solomon's face. And he doesn't do much about it. And you can read about that in 1 Kings 12. Okay, so. Ecclesiastes the theology of Ecclesiastes we first need to kind of once we've established that there are two different writers we then have to ask do they have two different theologies is there a difference in approach to God's chokmah from Proverbs in the two writers okay, so Ecclesiastes is a Greek title and it does mean Kohelet in Hebrew and Kohelet is a nickname for literally, it, liter- if we're going to literally translate it, it means the assembler, the one who gathers. And so sometimes in your translations, you'll see preacher. But the assembly that's being gathered is less a church based on the language. When scholars read Ecclesiastes, they don't necessarily see a church. Sometimes they see it, most often, scholars see a classroom. So sometimes in your English translations, it won't be translated preacher, it will be teacher. Both the, you know, there, There's uh, arguments for both, either way, in and out. Some say teacher, some say preacher, but Kohelet is this nickname for the person who gathers. He assembles this congregation and then he teaches. Um, you, might know, you might notice Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes is derivative of uh, the word ecclesia or church, but either way, whether it's a church or a classroom, We've all gathered, we've all assembled, and we are to take heed to the teachers of, the, of Ecclesiastes, whether it's Kohelet or the second wise man. Okay? So we're going we're gonna to consider that there are two authors and that there are two theologies. Kohelet seems, in the middle of the book, to be uneasy with Proverbs. And you see that in his repetition of the word meaningless. He keeps saying it over and over and over again. This is meaningless. It's in over 30 passages. And it's also used in other parts of scripture, and it kind of corroborates um, Kohelet's view of the way things are working out for some people. It's even used by the second author, the second wise man, in a couple of spots, both in the beginning of the book, in the, in the prologue, and in the epilogue. And he does that to summarize what Kohelet seems to say about life. Um, now, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. We see that over and over again. Some of your translations say vanity. Everything is vanity. And the word that is in Hebrew translated into meaningless is a really, just like chokmah, it's equally deep and profound. And the more you look into it, the more you see its depth and profundity, it it continues to go on and on. It is sort of meaninglessness, but it's also a number of other things, and it's used throughout Scripture for a number of other things. It literally, it means breath or vapor or a cloud. Hebel hebel is um, in many, many places used to denote the, the breath of life. Right? Almost like God's hopma, his wisdom is breathed through the world. It's constructing a creation on which we can build the good life. And that's uh, a, that's sort of what Hebel is getting at. But it's also this thing that is not permanent. It is a vapor. And when the writer of Ecclesiastes says everything is meaningless, what he's more mean, what he's more accurately saying is, This is temporary, and it's not something that I can grasp. It's not something that I can hold on to and then keep for the rest of my life. It's in and out. It's frail. They're not necessarily saying that the good life is meaningless, but they are saying it's temporary. When the good life gets constructed, will it stay around and be something that is going to lavish me with the gifts of good life? And the writer of Ecclesiastes (coughs) seems to want to say, Uh, Nope, it's not. It's not necessarily something that you can lay hold of um, in perpetuity. Now, the theology of Ecclesiastes is wrapped around this concept of heaven, that life is temporary, it is fleeting, um, the wisdom of God is not, but our pursuits in the midst of that wisdom of God are. So let's now break down the theology of, of Coquelet himself. Um, so we need, we need to jump in with some more verses. Anybody else want to? Uh, hasn't read yet. Want to help us out? Um, ooh, two seven. Thank you. Yeah, Ecclesiastes two seven. Ecclesiastes nine four. Oh, I'm sorry. Two seventeen. Don't show off. I know it is. <laughs> Thank you. Two seventeen. That's right. Somebody else. Nine four. yes nine four. Quinton. Thank you. Um, so can anybody else? Um, oh, we don't need to go back. I have some verses that I was going to talk, but we'll just assume that we're going to. Proverbs is wisdom above all else. Okay. Keeping in mind that Proverbs says the beginning of wisdom is this: go get wisdom. Right? Before you do anything else, get wisdom, and the, to do that, you fear God and understand how He works in the world. We're going to assume that, we won't look up the verses that I have. Can somebody go to Ecclesiastes 7:16. Thank you. Ecclesiastes 2: 12 through16. A little longer. Thank you, sir. And then I'll get the last one. Oh, actually, um, we have two there. I'll get four four, and somebody else get two seventeen. Thank you, Patty. Okay. Now, so the theology of Kohelet. As we read these verses, try to distinguish what he thinks. What is he? What is he actually saying about about life? All right. Uh, who had two seventeen? Thank you, ma'am. Came to hate life. Nine four. A, a, a living dog is better than a dead lion. I hate life, but at least to be alive, it's better than to be dead. Right? He. It's it's seemingly contradictory. Wisdom above all else, and yet seven sixteen. Go get wisdom, but don't be too wise, right? Don't be, don't, uh, don't concern yourself too much with too much knowledge and too much wisdom. Two, who has two, 12 through 16? Everybody, everybody hear him? You go after wisdom. Don't be too wise. Don't make it this all-encompassing pursuit. It will only end up where? In the grave, just like the fool. We go. Kohelet seems to be struggling. I know that wisdom is light. I know that it's better to live in the light than in the dark. And yet, is it any better than the fool? Did I end up in any different place than the fool did? does? He doesn't seem to have any real concept of an afterlife. He doesn't seem to have any real concept of consequences for his actions, or living in Pokma, or what that brings, not just in the good life here, but in the ultimate good life of paradise later. He seems to be discounting that altogether. And then, uh, hard work. Who's got two? Is that you, Patty? Thank you. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toil, and use my wisdom under the sun. This is also vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving apart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This is also vanity. Thank you. What happens to all your hard work? Someone else gets it, right? work and work and work and work and then somebody else takes the credit for my work and they get all of the fruit of my labor and yet in elsewhere in scripture we're told great work and work and work because you're going it is right for you to pass on to the rest of your family something that you have collected you don't just work for you you work for the good of your family and your community and it is righteous to have something to pass on to your heirs and we're told that in other scriptures Uh, so then you get, but ultimately this guy is really distraught that he works and works and works and somebody else takes over after he's dead. And here is 4.4, Ecclesiastes 4.4. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This is also vanity and striving after the wind. And then, so he concludes, why do we all go to work? Why do we all uh, toil and strive? Because we're competing and trying to keep up with the Joneses. He has a very pessimistic view of his work, the fruits of that labor, and then the ultimate destiny of the fruits of that labor. Kokolet. This guy's pretty amazing. So, later on, in the book of Ecclesiastes, just for the the sake of time, um, he deals with a number of other pretty deep and important topics, political power, riches, large families, long life, honor. Um, And in considering each of these topics, Kohelet reaches some obvious conclusions. And some of them you heard in the verses that we've already read. Kohelet's theology seems to be summarized with, uh, very simply, everybody dies. We are all going to die. And before you die, you have no control, and you have no ability to know the appropriate thing to do in any particular, and that's Proverbs, right? Proverbs doesn't give us a, a bunch of do's and don'ts. Proverbs gives, gives us this broad umbrella of principles that we apply at the right time. We don't just do the same thing every time. We know when to speak and we know when to be quiet. Right? We, know when to, uh, we know when to act and we know when to sit still. And Koholet seems to be discounting those principles from Proverbs and summarizes everything with, we're gonna die, can't control anything, and we're not even good at figuring out what to do when. Now, keep in mind that Proverbs is the are those are those principles. And Kohelet knows this too, right? Even in Ecclesiastes 3, Kohelet does know, he takes Proverbs and he applies it to um, the the famous bird song. Is that was it by the birds? Uh, or was it by the eagles? There is a time for everything under heaven. Was it the Eagles? Yeah. I mean, I don't. I can I don't know. But right. So he applies it to those principles. Uh, he applies those principles um, to his own life. There's a time to reap and a time to sow. There's a time to. There's a time to be born. There's a time to die. And he does. He does seem to understand that. But he also knows that he's human and he has terrible timing. He doesn't know ultimately what to do what to do in certain situations. This is ten verse fourteen. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him? Right? He doesn't understand what's coming, he doesn't understand what will follow him, and he kind of throws up his hands in the air and resigns himself to that ignorance. Eight seven. Verse seven. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? This is 9, 11, and 12. Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. It's pretty fatalistic in a lot of the things that are being thrown at thrown at him and thrown at the people around him. Who knows when it's coming? We don't know. We can't figure it out. We've all got bad timing, and we're just kind of at the whim of the, of the fates, almost. What does he know? What can he count on? This is Ecclesiastes 9.5. For the living know that they will die, the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward for the memory of them is forgotten. So, death to kill renders everything meaningless. This is why everything is a vapor, because when you die, things go away. Um, a, couple of more, a couple of more points, and I thought some of you would also find this um, very moving, right, including me. I'm, um, I'm coaching basketball for our school, and most of the basketball players also play football. And so they are in football practice. If they're in one sport, we don't make them. We don't require them. We don't even want to see them in the other sport. But that means that most of our kids are still playing football. And so we only have nine kids to play basketball. If you know about basketball, you play five on five. You need ten. And so who has to be the tenth guy? Yeah. The, the old idiot who tore his Achilles last year and can barely keep up and is, like, sucking wind as these kids are running all around him. Right? And Kohalet knows this. He knows what growing old is. He says it's like a storm moving in. It's an unmaintained house. And in one verse, he said, it's a severed rope, a broken bowl, a shattered pitcher, and a ruined wheel. Right? And we've all, who hasn't felt that? We've all felt that. No difference between us and the animals. And he does not seem to believe that the curse on the creation will ever be reversed. As all of these things are breaking down, the good life breaks down. Uh, people getting away with not applying ho all over the place. People are, um, people are really dumb and they're getting rich, right? People are, really, um, people are really lazy and everything still works out for them. And he's looking around and he seems to be in this despair that the curse on Adam and the ground and on the woman and her labor uh, are not ever going to be turned around. And in fact, his view of God is also almost equally pessimistic. He does not ever call God by any of his intimate names. Right? You might remember that Yahweh is God's name that he gave to himself to Moses in the burning bush. Moses says, whom in the world am I going to say sent me back to Egypt to tell the people that they're to be free? And God says, you tell them I am sent you. The, the great I Am. It's a very intimate, very loving, very personal name God gave to Yahweh, but Kohelet, throughout his treatise, doesn't ever use one of the intimate names. He only says Elohim, lowercase a, or the God, but not intimate, but distant. He's far off, and he feels this gulf between, between him and God as everything flees, especially the good life. Um, God seems to be Sovereign, but he is ultimately unconcerned. He doesn't necessarily um, want to enter in and relieve people's suffering. To Kohelet, he sees judgment, but he does not see justice. He sees that something is coming, and something is going to uh, render uh, all things, uh, all sin, as evil. But he does not necessarily see that justice is going to come to the evildoer. He should be comforted. He should see God's immanence and his transcendence. He should see that God is involved in his creation. That's the whole point of hokmah. Hokmah is a very intimate thing working through the universe. You can rely on it. You can also grab hold of it and join in with it. Right? You can use that chokmah to build a good life for yourself and your family and the people around you. That's God's immanence. But God is also over and above. He's not stuck in the creation like the Hindu gods. He's not fighting against other gods who can defeat him. He's not fighting against people who could defeat him, like in the Hindu pantheon. God is transcendent and over and above and untouchable, and nothing can stop him. While at the same time, his chokmah is working through our lives, and he is right here, available, right now, and you can call out his name. But the writer of Ecclesiastes, Kohelet, all of that seems to be lost on him. He sees imminence as something that's going to crush him, or he sees transcendence as something that is a gulf that he cannot bridge. He can't talk to him, or he can't call out in an intimate way for for help. So Kohelet, pretty fun guy, right? That's not Ecclesiastes. As you read Ecclesiastes in the chunk of the book, That's not the main point of the book. Kohelet is giving one view of God that's not based on chokmah working through the world. Keep that in mind because the other writer of Ecclesiastes, the second wise man who wrote the beginning and the end of the book, he sums it all up. This is um, from uh, one of the most prominent Old Testament scholars in the world. He teaches, uh, actually, I don't know where he teaches now. They, these guys move all over. And he was in Philadelphia, I believe, when he wrote this. Um, but this is, this is the summation of this scholar, Longman. Kohelet's speech is a foil, a teaching device used by the second wise man in order to instruct his son concerning the dangers of speculative, doubting wisdom in Israel. Just as in the book of Job, most of the book of Ecclesiastes is composed of the non-Orthodox speeches of the human participants of the book. Speeches that are torn down and demolished in the end. Keep that in mind. This, is, this, guy's, this next slide is Tremper Longman's translation of part of the epilogue from The Second Wise Man. So read Ecclesiastes as if it's saying this. Completely meaningless, Kohelet said. Everything is meaningless. Furthermore, Kohelet was a wise man. He also taught people knowledge. He heard, investigated, and put into good order many proverbs. uh, Kohelet sought to find words of delight and to write honestly words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads. Like firmly planted nails are the masters of collections they are given by a shepherd. Furthermore, of these, my son, be warned, there is no end to the making of many books, and much study wearies the body. Right? He right there summarizes Kohalet's life. Kohalet got wearied by all of his studies. Kohalet got wearied by all of his writing when it wasn't grounded in a real understanding of God's wisdom, God's Hokmah working through the world. And then he continues on, this is the, the last two verses of Ecclesiastes. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. Sounds a lot like Proverbs, right? The, the, the second wise man of Ecclesiastes is going back to the wisdom of Proverbs and God's Hokma in the world, which begins where? Fearing God and knowing that he's in the world. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So in this final, um, this final word, the second wise man summarizes Kohelet's thoughts, but then wraps them into the rest of the Old Testament and its theology. Right? He, he ties Kohelet together in, with wisdom and the law and the prophets. And you can see that in the verses I just read. Let me go back real quick. So the law, uh, fear God, keep his commandments. That's the law, right? Fear God is the beginning of wisdom. So he's tying in wisdom, the wisdom literature, and the wisdom of Israel, the law of Israel, and the prophets of Israel, right? When he mentions judgment, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing. Be wise, fear God, keep his commandments, and remember the judgment. And in all of this, many people ask, where is the Messiah? Where is the redemption that comes from Kohelet's despair? Where is the the fixing of of the curse? Um, And it is not blatant. And lots of commentators lots of translators have gone really far in doing some really clever verbal gymnastics with the Hebrew text, to try to turn um, the text into late um, messianic texts, and that can't really be done. It's very difficult. Um, one guy, Ambrose, um, Ambrose of Milan, he even said that um, the, three, the, the three-stranded cord that can't be broken in Ecclesiastes, that's obviously the Trinity. Well, we don't really have any indication other than the number three, that, you know, that it's the Trinity. So some, some writers, some translators have worked really hard to of Crowbar uh, that redemptive history or the Messiah into Ecclesiastes. Um, you can see it in little little glimpses, right? The whole wisdom of God is Jesus. You want to see you want to see the wisdom of God? Look at Jesus' life. You want to see the Ten Commandments? You want to see the law? Look at Jesus. He kept all of them perfectly, where we break all of them repeatedly. It also we also get uh, a little glimpse of it right here. The words of the wise man are given by the shepherd, right? This, this, that view of a, a wise, loving God that is intimately involved and that's guiding his people with his hokumoth, through his hokumoth, um, is seen in the book as well. Ecclesiastes is not necessarily a fun read, but if you read it now with the understanding that there is a second wise man who bookended the thoughts of this other despairing philosopher uh, that becomes uh, a lot more consistent with the rest of Old Testament theology. Kovalet in the middle of the book, is summarizing the despair that would come from somebody who doesn't understand how hokmah works in the world. The second guy does, and he says, look at this guy. This is what Israel has given us. This is a lot of Israel's teachers. But they're forgetting God's loving uh, intimacy, right? His Hokma works in the world. You can use that Hokma or wisdom to build the good life. And it doesn't necessarily look like you're going to be the, you know, you're not going to be Zuckerberg and Gates. That doesn't matter. You can be a, a pauper and still construct a good life. You can still see how God works in the world and join in that work as you, as you move. Uh, any questions? or thoughts on Ecclesiastes. Sure. So, so then you're like, oh man, this guy's like, okay, therefore what he's saying I mean, if he's prologging and epilogging that he's not in intentionalism, I mean he's saying, therefore, you see this, therefore, here's the thing, you've got to fear and keep the commandments and like that. Sure. Uh and the only the only counterpoint to that is Kohelect's language in the Hebrew is not as a prosecuting attorney who's saying, look at what it's like. To live like this, it's a, a very personal, first-person, um, more you know, first-person despair. You of that sort of life? Sure, yeah, but he's I mean. not super objective about it. The language of the Hebrew of Kohelet is much more subjective. Like this is me, this is my life, and it seems like it's more a personal despair than looking at what the life is like of somebody else. But I see why you're saying that. It does if you take it that way with the prologue and epilogue. There are, um, And then he does seem to say there is some wisdom here, and there is something that, that is to be taken. He did a lot of good work. He collected a lot of sayings from our proverbial sayings that we should listen to. Um, the only So I see why you're saying that. But from what I read in, in the commentaries, and especially Longman, Kohelet's language is so first person that they think that Kohelet does actually think this. Does that make sense? That's why I presented it that way. Now keep all this in mind, because when you read Job for next week, right, uh, Job, Job is the ultimate, he's the, the, like the ultimate example of when all of that good life gets wiped out, and what does he do, right? But remember, the same with Ecclesiastes, um, the other uh, human participants in the book right, are giving the non-orthodox version of um, God's work in the world, right? They're not expressing What God truly is and what He truly does to Job. And at some points, that's also Job and his wife. Yeah, Elizabeth, sorry, your hand went off. Yeah, that's like in, uh, Moses goes up on, the Mount, on Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments. And he's up there for a month. And they're like, what are you? where are you? What are you doing? Where have you been? And they make a golden calf in the meantime and bow down. And what do they call it? Yahweh. They bow down to the golden calf, not as a different god. They build Yahweh, but it can't possibly encompass Yahweh. Um, so, but, yeah, that, that despair, where are you, is very real to all of us at different points. Thank you. Any, any other things? Yeah. Sure. stretching? Maybe. Is that is this despair what Jesus felt? I mean, when he sweats in the garden, like he's, you know, it's, his blood is leaking out his capillaries, begging God not to do this. Don't do this to me. Come up with something else, right? And he's begging him. And God says, nope, this is what has to happen. And Jesus then goes through with it. And if you see that, you despair on the cross. Um, I wouldn't necessarily, I wouldn't say that that principle is directly messianic, but it's a common principle that all of us have felt. And the great thing about our Messiah is He has felt all of the despair and loneliness that all of us, including Kohanim, have felt. Right? And He takes it on Himself. So I wouldn't necessarily say it's a stretch at all. Birds like that song. This is the birds. Yes. That's right. You were classmates. I thought he, after, after reading him, I thought he was very sweet. I thought he was adorable. And so I want you to know that and I was class, young Yes. You, why Debbie? Went but to school with dad, like Great. All right, let's pray. We've, went, we've gone over. Uh, there's some homework for next week, some of the chapters of Job, the opening uh, and everything being taken from him. Then also read uh, God's answer to Job at the end. Thank you, God, for your wisdom in the world. We thank you that it is not inaccessible, but it is right here, and that we can uh, lay hold of it, we can ask for it, we can um, repent and see how your wisdom works through the world in both our lives and the lives of those around us. Please teach us how to construct a good life, not for us, but for the people around us who don't know what that means, who don't know um, your comfort in their loneliness, who don't know... um, how your judgment is just and good and loving and we, we haven't seen you yet so please let us show your hope to those around us in your heavenly name amen thanks everyone